Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I'm your host, Sarah. And we're back this week with some more interesting articles to share with you guys. We're going to start off with the Madeline McCann case, which we initially covered the Madeline McCann case on episode 130 in May of 2021. So if you want to hear all the details about that case, you can go back and listen to that one. But evidently, this case has popped back into the news because there is a woman who is claiming that she's Madeline McCann. Woman who claims she's Madeline McCann denies stealing birth certificate to cover her tracks. And Emily Crane wrote this article. A Polish woman who believes she is Madeline McCann has denied her parents' claims that she stole her birth certificate and childhood photos to hide that she is not the missing British girl. Julia Faustia, 21, doubled down on her widespread claim that she could be Madeline, who disappeared age three during a 2007 family vacation during an appearance on Dr. Phil after her parents accused her of fueling a web of lies and manipulation. I believe I am Madeline McCann, she says, in a written statement aired during Dr. Phil's show. Faustina's parents, who insist they are the woman's biological kin, said it was obvious that Julia isn't Maddie. For us as a family, it's obvious Julia is our daughter, granddaughter, sister, niece, cousin, and stepniece. We have memories, we have pictures, they said. Julia Faustina, 21, insisted on an interview with Dr. Phil on Monday, saying that she is Madeline McCann. Julia also has these photos because she took them from the family home with the birth certificate, as well as numerous hospital discharges. Asked about her parents' allegations, Faustina says, I never saw my birth certificate and I didn't take pictures. Faustina, who made the first Madeline claim on Instagram and TikTok, has previously said she has never seen a photo of her mother pregnant and that she has very few childhood memories. Madeline McCann vanished age three while on vacation with her parents in Portugal in 2007. She told Dr. Phil her mom would always change the subject whenever she questioned her about her ancestry or birth. Faustina added the first six pages of her Polish child health book, which is given to every child, was mysteriously blank. Fia Johansson, a private investigator and medium who's working with Faustina, told Dr. Phil her team had driven to the hospital where the woman's mom said she gave birth to her, but claims they failed to find any evidence. We didn't find anything, and they said we don't have any here. So we went to another hospital, and they said the same thing. We don't have any here. So we go to the third one, and they said we don't have any. Faustina denied her parents' claim she stole her birth certificate and childhood photos in a bid to hide the fact she is not actually the missing British girl. Madeline's parents, Gary and Kate, haven't yet commented on Faustina's claims, but reportedly agreed to take a DNA test. Faustina, who is also listed in some reports as Julia Wendell or Julia Wendelt, said she is currently awaiting ancestry and DNA results to confirm her true identity. Asked what she would do if the results proved she isn't Madeline, Faustina said she wouldn't want any contact with her Polish family. If she is my mother, I don't want to have contact with her at all, but I believe she isn't my mother. Since airing her claims on social media earlier this year, Faustina has tried to prove her case by pointing out physical similarities between herself and Madeline, including a brown smudge that appears on each girl's right eye. Madeline's parents, Gary and Kate McCann, have yet to comment on Faustina's claims, but reportedly agreed to a DNA test. Their daughter vanished from her bed while the family was vacationing in 2007. 
I very much doubt this girl is Madeline McCann, but uh, I mean, you never know nowadays, and we will keep everyone posted as that case continues to unfold. I know that we've previously talked about Alec Baldwin and the case that is currently going on against him. Evidently, he is now being sued by three Rust crew members for blast injuries in the shooting. Gene Mattis wrote this article. Three Rust crew members sued Alec Baldwin and the film's producers on Monday, alleging they have suffered anxiety and symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of the shooting death of the film's cinematographer. The three crew members were in the church building at the Bonanza Creek Ranch near Santa Fe, New Mexico, when Baldwin's gun fired, striking cinematographer Halna Hutchkins and director Joel Souza. Baldwin has denied pulling the trigger, though prosecutors have charged him with involuntary manslaughter for allegedly firing the weapon while it was pointed at Hutchins. Plaintiffs in the latest suit are Ross Adiego, the dolly operator, Doran Curtin, the set costumer, and Reese Price, the key grip. According to the suit, all three were in close proximity to Baldwin when the gun was fired and suffered blast injuries from the deafening sound of the shot. According to the complaint, Hutchins fell to the ground directly in front of Curtin. She watched in shock as Hutchins grabbed at her abdomen, the lawsuit states. Plaintiff Curtin put her hands on Hutchins' stomach trying to find the source of Hutchins' pain and figure out what was going on. As the chaos continued, Plaintiff Curtin was ushered out of the church. Once outside, she collapsed from the effects of the blast and the shock of the shooting. The lawsuit also alleges the producers cut corners and hired people who had been the subject of previous safety complaints, including David Halls, the first assistant director. The suit also faults the producers for hiring armorer Hannah Gutierrez-Reed despite her lack of experience because they allegedly wanted a quick and cheap production. The lawsuit faults Baldwin for not paying attention during weapons training, for failing to ensure the gun was not loaded with a live bullet, and for discharge of the round. Baldwin's representative declined to comment. Halls has agreed to plead no contest to a misdemeanor count in the discharge of a dangerous weapon. Gutierrez Reed, like Baldwin, is facing a charge of involuntary manslaughter, which carries a maximum sentence of 18 months in prison. The three plaintiffs joined several other crew members who have filed suits in New Mexico and California, including the script supervisor, set medic, and gaffer. In one of these suits, Baldwin's lawyers filed a counterclaim alleging four other people were at fault in the shooting, but he was not. Hutchins' widower Matthew filed a lawsuit a year ago. In October, he agreed to a settlement that will allow the film to be completed. The producers expect to resume shooting this spring in Montana, with Baldwin still in the lead role. Hutchins' parents and sister filed suit earlier this month, and last week, Rust Movie Productions agreed to pay $100,000 to settle a workplace safety citation from the New Mexico Occupational Health and Safety Bureau. I suspect this case will take quite a while to wind its way through the court system, as it probably should, but we're going to jump to the next article. This one is Insider Alleges Jim Bob Blamed Wife Michelle for Josh Duggar's Child Pornography Issues. Jessica Rodden wrote this one, and this is pretty disturbing. Josh Duggar has spent the last several months in prison after being found guilty on counts of receiving and possessing child pornography. He was sentenced to 151 months in prison. He is appealing, but while Duggar has been incarcerated, there has been additional scrutiny on his past behavior before federal agents showed up to arrest him in 2021. There's been additional scrutiny on his famous father, Jim Bob Duggar's alleged actions as well. 
fans of the reality series will remember a scandal from years prior in which InTouch added a report indicating a younger Josh Duggar had molested some young women, including several of his sisters. The incident had been handled privately and the report had been sealed, but it was able to be accessed through the Freedom of Information Act request and Duggar filed a lawsuit over the public molestation reveal, but he lost it and subsequent appeals. Meanwhile, 19 Kids and Counting was canceled and life moved on. Josh married his wife, Anna, and they had seven children. Several of his family members joined the cast of Counting On, which aired on TLC, the same network as the family's former reality show. Josh got a job working for the Family Research Council, but later switched to selling cars after an alleged Ashley Madison cheating scandal came to light. In the larger family narrative, Jim, Bob, and Michelle still allegedly control a lot of things behind the scenes, with the famous patriarch reportedly taking the lion's share of the money made from reality TV. On top of this, a new report from Without a Crystal Ball indicates early in the history of Josh Duggar's reported issues, his parents were aware of what was going on and crafted narratives to explain his behavior. According to what an insider told Katie Joy, Jim Bob reportedly threw his wife Michelle under the bus over the issue. Not surprising. In 2006, Michelle had told her friends the reason Josh was the way he was is because when he was eight years old, he found a box of men's magazines. And that was why he did what he did. Michelle's story did not match what Jim Bob's story was, though. Once Jim Bob started talking to his friends, his friend told them that he'd actually started blaming Michelle. He told a bunch of people at church that Michelle was promiscuous in high school, and because she was promiscuous in high school, and because she would sometimes self-please herself, Josh inherited her tendencies. Appalling. If true, that's quite the accusation, though it's worth noting this is all secondhand information from unnamed sources. Regardless, YouTuber Katie Joy said she spoke to insiders who had contact with individuals in both Michelle Duggar and Jim Bob's camps, and they were allegedly speaking about a period of time in which Josh Duggar had his head shaved. He was seen with his head shaved in TV specials, so this is confirmed, and was living away from the main house, allegedly, while his family figured out what to do with his tendencies. Separately, Katie Joy also noted that an insider shared Jim Bob reportedly went out of his way to keep the blame from Josh's behaviors on external circumstances, saying that Michelle's sin and problems with premarital promiscuity and pleasuring herself in her teen years was the reason for why Josh did what he did to his sisters. He also said at one point that he became like his father or inherited things from his father, but he wouldn't specify what his father did. Jim Bob basically pointed the finger at anyone else but himself. Jim Bob and Michelle haven't publicly spoken out about Josh much since his arrest, trial, and ultimate imprisonment, but when the verdict did come down, the Duggar parents did break their silence and write the entire ordeal has been grievous, and they were praying for Joshua, although they did not go so far as to agree with the court's decision, as some of the other Duggar family members did. Jim Bob has also been seen in the courtroom during the trial, while Michelle has asked for leniency ahead of the sentencing. And then then we covered off on the Jeffrey Epstein case in episode 31 way back in 2019. That was in August. So if you want to hear more details about that particular case, go check that one out. But evidently, Ghislaine Maxwell will reportedly use new $1 million divorce settlement to fund her appeal. And Audra Heinrichs wrote this article. 
The Sun reported that Ghislaine Maxwell, convicted sex trafficker and alleged madam of prolific pedophile Jeffrey Epstein, will finally appeal her 20-year prison sentence thanks to a fresh new divorce settlement she received from behind bars. Roughly eight months post-trial, Maxwell appears to have earned enough cash in her split from tech entrepreneur Scott Borgerson to launch a $10 million appeal. Just weeks after Page Six reported that Maxwell hired fellow sex pest Harvey Weinstein's attorney for the mounting proceedings, the tabloid has since added that her new legal representation will argue that Maxwell's constitutional rights were violated during her trial. Apparently, she was subject to such squalor while behind bars at the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn that she was too malnourished and sleep-deprived to contribute meaningfully to her own defense. By the time of the trial, she was so disoriented and diminished that she was unable to meaningfully assist in her own defense, much less to testify, Maxwell's new attorney, Arthur Adela, claimed in a statement. Consistent with relentless reports throughout the trial, Page Six reported that her team will outline how she suffered in overall deplorable conditions amongst vermin in her cell. She was malnourished, and yet she's supposed to sit for a trial with her life on the line. In the United States of America, anyone who's accused of any crime should not be abused by the U.S. government the way she was abused, Adiala told Page Six in January. It's almost like scores of innocent people endure such abuse every single day and have no hope or a divorce settlement for help. Maxwell's appeal also outlines other legal breaches like violation of a five-year statute of limitations and a non-prosecution agreement that supposedly immunized her. What's that sound? Oh, that's just me playing the world's smallest violin, says the author. I don't think her appeals are going to be very successful, but we will keep you all posted on that one. (laughs) I can't with her anymore. Um, (laughs) Next article. We covered off on the case of Brian Koberger and the University of Idaho student murderers January 8th in episode 207. So if you want to hear some more about that one, go check that episode out. But this article is what the FBI found at the home of the University of Idaho murder suspect. Tom Winter and Antonio Planis wrote this one. The FBI recovered four medical-style gloves and a silver flashlight last year when they searched the Pennsylvania home of the parents of man charged with killing four University of Idaho students. A buccal swab DNA test was also recovered during the search of Brian Coburg's parents' home in Albright, according to a search warrant return obtained by NBC News. Investigators were authorized to get swabs from Coburger, according to court records. The search warrant did not specify whom the gloves belonged to. Other items collected included a white t-shirt, a Washington State Cougar sweatshirt, a pair of Nike shoes, a pair of socks, black shorts and black boxers. Koberger, 28, was arrested in Pennsylvania seven weeks after four students were stabbed to death in their beds in a home not far from the University of Idaho campus. An incident that stunned residents in tiny Moscow, Idaho, perplexed police and prompted a nationwide manhunt. Koberger waived extradition to Idaho, where he's being held without bail. He has been charged with four counts of first-degree murder and burglary. If convicted, he could face the death penalty. Koberger, who was living in an apartment in Pullman, Washington, appeared to have a keen interest in crime. He had been a PhD student in criminal justice and criminology at Washington State University, which is 10 miles from the University of Idaho. 
A probable cause affidavit from Moscow police said investigators used video surveillance in the area to connect the quadruple homicide with a white Hyundai Elantra driven by Koberger. The affidavit also said male DNA was left on a knife sheath that was used to link Koberger with the slayings, but the affidavit did not suggest a motive for the attack. Koberger has not formally entered a plea, but is said to a former attorney he believes he will be exonerated. And then there's all the creepy items seized from his family home by Josh Faleo. A search warrant unsealed this last week revealed another list of creepy items cops seized when they arrested Idaho quadruple murderer Brian Kohlberger in December. The warrant reveals cops seized a Glock 22 pistol and three empty magazines for the gun, as well as a Smith & Wesson pocket knife, a black mask, black gloves, and a black hat. Police also seized from the home a criminal psychology book, a green leafy substance in a container, an unidentified prescription, a cell phone, a laptop, power cables, clothes, personal notes, and paperwork, like his AT&T phone bill and a bill of sale for the handgun. Cops also recovered a shovel, gloves, and goggles in Koberger's 2015 white Hyundai Elantra. The December 30th search came on the same day Koberger was arrested for allegedly stabbing four University of Idaho students in their off-campus home November 13th. Earlier this week, authorities in Pennsylvania unsealed a separate search warrant which revealed the items seized off Koberger himself, which were a DNA swab, medical gloves, a flashlight, and the dark clothes he was wearing when he was arrested in the middle of the night at his parents' home. The warrants weren't released until this last week because the state procedure was to seal for 60 days. The search warrant unsealed in Washington State in January listed items seized from Koberger's campus apartment in Washington State University as well, including a black surgical glove, a vacuum cleaner bag, roughly a dozen strands of hair, both human and animal, receipts from Marshalls and Walmart, a sample collected from a dark red spot found inside, cuttings from an uncased pillow with a reddish-brown stain, and a mattress cover bearing multiple stains. Koberg was a PhD student in criminology at WSU, located just a few miles from the crime scene. He had been arrested in Pennsylvania after he drove across the country to spend Christmas break with his parents. He has since been extradited back to Idaho, where he has been held without bail and waits the resumption of his murder trial in June. And we will, of course, keep you all posted on that one. We couldn't have an updated episode without something about Elizabeth Holmes. Elizabeth Holmes has second child as prison sentence looms. And this one just came out recently. Associated Press reported it. Disgraced Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes is citing her recently born child as another reason she should be allowed to delay the start of a more than 11-year prison sentence while her lawyers appeal her conviction for duping investors about the capabilities of her failed company's blood testing technology. The birth of Holmes' second child was confirmed in court documents filed last week in advance of a March 17th hearing about her bid to remain free on appeal since the process could take years to complete. The filing did not disclose the date of birth of the child or the child's gender, but the news is not a surprise. Holmes, 38, was pregnant at the time of her November 18th sentencing in the same San Jose, California courtroom where a jury convicted her on four felony counts of fraud and conspiracy. 
The start of the trial had been delayed so Holmes could give birth to her first child, a son. Holmes had both children with her current partner, William Billy Evans. She met Evans after her 2016 breakup with her former lover and business partner, Ramesh Sunny Balwani, who was convicted on 12 counts of fraud and conspiracy in a separate trial. Balwani is also trying to convince the U.S. District Judge Edward Davila to delay the start of his nearly 13-year prison sentence. A hearing on his request was held earlier this month, but Davila has not issued a ruling either. Holmes isn't citing her two children as the only reason she should be allowed out of prison during her appeal. Her lawyers contend that an array of mistakes and abuses made during her trial make it likely her conviction will be overturned. They are also pointing to Holmes' unblemished record while she has been free on bail during the four and a half years since her criminal indictment as evidence that she isn't a flight risk or a danger to the community. You mean besides the trip she planned without authorizing it to Mexico and bought tickets for? Hmm... If you would like to hear more details on the Elizabeth Holmes case, feel free to go check out our earlier episode that we reported on that issue. And it was episode 84, published July 5th, 2020. Again, that's episode 84 if you want to hear more details about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. And one final article for the show. And this is a big one. If you recall, the BFD podcast covered off on the Kristen Smart case in episode 127, published April 16th, 2021. Well, there is a huge update on this one. Paul Flores was sentenced to 25 years to life for the murder of Kristen Smart. He was sentenced in mid-March, 25 years to life in prison for the 1996 murder of California college student Kristen Smart. He is not eligible for probation. He will be eligible for a parole board hearing in 15 years, at which point the board could grant or deny a parole release, according to prosecutors. A jury convicted Paul Flores in October on first-degree murder in 2022. The count alleged that he, with malice aforethought, murdered Kristen Smart while engaging in the commission or attempting to commit the crime of rape. Prior to the sentencing, the judge denied two defense motions seeking a new trial and dismissal of charges and acquittal in the case. Paul Flores, 46, a former classmate of Smart, was charged with murder while his father was charged with being an accessory to the crime. Prosecutors say he helped hide Smart's body on his property in Arroyo Grande before moving it in 2020. His father, Ruben Flores, was found not guilty of accessory to murder in connection with the crime. Smart went missing while walking home from a party at California Polytechnic State University, San Luis Obispo. Her body has never been found, but authorities arrested Paul and Ruben Flores in April 2021 and found alleged evidence related to Smart's murder in their homes. A judge ordered that the Flores trials be moved out of San Luis Obispo County, more than 100 miles away to Monterey County, to ensure fair legal proceedings. Paul and Ruben Flores were tried at the same time, but with separate juries hearing the case together during 11 weeks of testimony. Today, our criminal and victim justice system has finally delivered justice for Kristen Smart, for the Smart family, and for our San Luis Obispo County community, said San Luis Obispo County District Attorney Dan Dow in a statement following the sentence. We thank the Smart family and our community for the tremendous trust and patience they placed in the investigation and prosecution of this terrible crime. We recognize the jury for their focused attention to the evidence and the sheriff's office for their tireless effort in building this case, the statement continued. 
Today, justice is delayed. It is not denied. Smart's parents who attended the sentencing expressed mixed emotions afterwards. Today is not really a day of joy. It is a day of relief that Kristen's voice was heard, Denise Smart told reporters. That brings us a sense of peace, knowing that there will be no more victims. Stan Smart said they don't have any closure because they don't know where their daughter's remains are. We are not happy because we don't have our daughter, he told reporters. As the judge pointed out, it's a sentence, but it doesn't bring back your loved one. Stan Smart added he knows that local authorities will continue to look for her remains. We want to remind the community this case is not over yet, and it won't be over until Kristen has been returned to her family. San Luis Obispo County Sheriff Ian Parkinson said in a statement calling the sentencing a long time coming, but one that is right and just. Dow had thanked a true crime podcaster after the jury reached a guilty verdict in the trial. Chris Lampert launched the series Your Own Backyard in 2019, recounting Smart's disappearance, which renewed public interest in the case. The podcast helped to identify additional witnesses and evidence that was critical in the prosecution of the case, Dow said. Lampert remarked to reporters that he was eight years old when Smart disappeared, and this case has been his entire life. I just never expected step after step for all of this to unravel the way it did, he said. Today's obviously the best possible outcome short of finding Kristen. And we will continue to keep the listeners up to speed as that one continues to unfold. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions about today's show... You can shoot us an email. We're at the BFDpodcast at gmail.com. We do occasionally post pictures of these cases as well on our Instagram, and that is at BFDpodcast. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye!